Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from Matthew's Gospel, the 18th chapter, verses 15 through 20. Hear with me now the words of the Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that everyone and that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them to tell the church, and if he refuses to listen to even the church, Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two or three ask anything, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, I am there with them also." This, my brothers and sisters, is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, we gather here in your house. We gather in our homes. We gather all across this land to worship and praise you. And as we do gather together in small groups, we remember that you are amongst us. May your spirit speak to our souls and to our lives this day, O Lord, so that we would be not just hearers of your word, but transformed into doers of your word. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. In John Kinsella's book, field of dreams, there's this poignant moment where the protagonist Ray is considering giving in and giving up on his quest to understand why he was asked to build a baseball diamond in the middle of a cornfield in Iowa. And just as he's about to give it up, Terrence Mann, the counterculture author that Ray has driven to Boston and has kidnapped speaks to him passionately to dissuade such action, to dissuade him giving up on the dream. And these are his words. People will come, Ray, and they'll come and watch the game and it will be as if they dip themselves in magic waters. The memories will be so thick they will have to brush them away from their faces. People will come, Ray. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. America has been rolled over like an army of steamrollers. It has been erased like a blackboard. It has been rebuilt and erased again. But baseball has marked the time. This field, this game is part of our past, Ray. It reminds us of all that once was good and could be again. Oh, people will come, Ray. People will most definitely come. Now, being a baseball fan, I love this passage. 
This passage speaks to how the game has sort of woven itself into the fabric of American life and the fabric of all who love the game to their lives. But as also one who had great English professors and great English teachers in high school, I love this passage for the vivid richness of the language, for the way that John Kinsella wrote those words. But I confess to you also, baseball fan and fan of great writing aside, I love this passage. I love this passage because I see a parallel between it and this institution that I love and that I serve, the church. I see a connection between that passage and what our mission and our ministry is, between who we are and who we have been throughout the dawn of time. And this text today, this text out of Matthew's gospel, it is rich in its own words. I mean, in there we hear about conflict resolution, the immense power of corporate and communal prayer, and even about the joy in the simplicity of Christian community. See, these are all the things I think that we need to hear and be reminded of today about conflict resolution, the power of prayer, and the joy of Christian community. And so as I think about that and I think about this text, I want to sort of turn the text upside down and start at the end and work back towards the beginning because I think that's what matters. See, the text is this poignant reminder to me that the work of the church, it is not solely institutional, not solely denominational. It is not just singularly located in a gothic soaring sanctuary or a mighty cathedral or even a quaint chapel in the countryside. No, instead of the work of the church is the work of the body of believers. It is the people in community who work together to grow in their faith to heal the world. Loving and serving each other and their community. Witnessing the love of God for all to see so that they may know and the world may know who it is that we serve and who has called us forth. And while we love this place and this soaring architecture that fills the skies and points our hearts up, what I think we really miss, what I hear from you so often in your emails, while you miss being in this place, and all that it holds for us that call this church home, or if you're joining us and your church is not open, what you miss about your church, it's not the building, is it? It's the community. It's the people. And so one of the most frustrating things I think we all have is that while we cannot yet gather together again under one roof, we need to maybe open our minds up and open our hearts and realize that we are still, even on this day, gathered together in God's Spirit. Gathered together in our homes all across this land. Gathered together, worshiping together, even when we can't see each other. We are knit together by God's powerful Holy Spirit. But even in that, we can go deeper. 
There are ways that we can recover and rebuild and reconstitute and remember this idea of community. In the history of our own denomination, we've seen this happen over, over time. When the, when the Methodist Church was first started in England and here in America, we understood the idea of the simpleness of building community in this idea of what Wesley called classes. Now, it wasn't a Bible study or a Sunday school class, but no, instead, it was a gathering of believers, of neighbors, right around each other, where they gather in each other's homes for prayer, for care, for support, for studying Scripture, for trying to figure out how to apply it to life, to gain from each other's perspectives of reason, tradition, and experience, and trying to read into the text what it might be saying to them at that time. My brothers and sisters, we can recover that kind of community where we take a large church like this and we make it grow smaller in these pockets of classes, fellowship groups, small groups, life groups, whatever you want to call them. But we can gather together intentionally to build our relationships, to intentionally grow together in our faith, to be like a band, if you will, and where we are living together. Now, how do we do that, you ask? Well, you know, one, we've got Zoom. I know we're all Zoomed out, but that's a way to leverage technology for that. But we can also call each other. We can gather together in neighborhood groups or our closest friends from other groups that we're a part of and gather in each other's driveways or backyards and begin to do this kind of intentional work, socially distanced, following all the protocols and build community. See, I think that's where the real currency, the real work of the church happens is in these smaller groups. And so as we begin to think about the programmatic year of the church turning from summer and into fall, when we would normally resume Sunday school classes in full and Bible studies in full, we're trying to figure out what that's all going to look like. But this may be a model for us. And so if that interests you, either to be a part of it or maybe even facilitate a group, how about shooting me or Brett or Meg or Susanna an email? Because this is something that we as a staff team are focused on trying to build ways to enhance this idea of community, to recover that. Because what we know is this, that where two or three are gathered, the good work of the church can flourish. It can expand, it can grow, and can make a difference in the world just right around where we live, right around where we spend our time, right with the people that we see on a regular basis. And then, of course, what grows out of that is the idea that we would be praying together. You know, what I think our world needs now more than ever is a deep sense of prayer, a deep commitment to it. I mean, prayer is the greatest gift that we can give each other and the world. It is the greatest tool that we have. It's the weapon that the Christian church yields for change. See, because it's in prayer that our hearts are fully revealed to God. Our desires are fully expressed and our souls are open for transformation by the holy as we listen to and hear God's call upon our lives. Now that happens on an individual basis when we have those prayers where we are constantly with our ears wide open. But imagine 
the compounding effect that happens when two or three gather together in prayer. When we lift those prayers up high, the lesson today says so. I mean, that's part of why our liturgy that we have been using and continue to use uses this guided litany that Kate talked about. Because when we pray, we're not just praying Kate's words. We're praying our words. There's space in there for you and me to add our parts to it. Because when we do that, think about it. If there's a thousand of us gathered in worship today all around, connected on the internet, bound together by God's Holy Spirit, that we lift a thousand prayers in that litany. A thousand prayers to the heavens and God hears our prayer. My friends, that's world changing. That is earth shattering. That is life transforming that happens when we lift people up, when we lift up the concerns of our community and we ask God to intercede. We say, Lord, show us the way. Lord, let us be instruments of the peace. Lord, we lift up our brother and sister in need. See, the ills, the issues, the concerns of our world don't stand a chance when the people of God gather together two or three or more in prayer. When we sing the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when we lift our prayers, think about what that means. A mighty fortress indeed, and nothing can prevail against it. And then finally, what I love about this text, this text gives us a perfect model for how to handle conflict, how to solve disagreements, how to solve disputes. Think about it. It starts very simply with this idea of one-on-one. I mean, no longer triangulating your neighbors and your friends and your coworkers and your other friends and family into it, but instead, not a passive-aggressive way to go straight to the source the one who has maligned you, the one who has upset you, to go to them and to confess to them and to speak the truth in love, but to speak it in love and to be honest about it. To share the hurts of our hearts. But in that one-on-one exchange, what must also happen is that we must listen. We must be, as, as, as James writes later, we must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. We must listen to how people have been hurt by our actions or the things that we do that have caused strife or conflict and to listen to them with open hearts and a willingness to change, to hear each other's perspectives. Because when we do that, we build stronger relationships between each other. But if that doesn't work, do you see what Jesus says next? If that doesn't work, if the one that you are in conflict with, if they won't listen to you, get two or three and go talk to them. Go talk to them. So, and the reason you get two or three is so that everyone can hear that there can be mediation, that there can be inquiring questions, that there can be hard truths that are named out to ask for clarity, but also once an agreement is reached that there is accountability. Again, in community, with God's Spirit woven all throughout it. And of course, it extrapolates out from there to from two or three to the church as a whole. But the idea is that community solves problems together. Think about the angst 
the conflict, the strife that seems to be constantly slurking in the corners and sometimes right out in front of us in real life, whether it's politics or race and reconciliation or opinions about the pandemic or how we're handling it or work or school or at home or in the neighborhood or with your friends, maybe even within the church. Conflict happens in all aspects of life. It's just part of being human. But what if? What if it didn't have to rule life? What if instead when conflict emerged that we as a church, we as a body of Christ, we as the believers gather together two or three, practice this model more? What if in modeling this in community, two or three gathered in Christ's name, we realize that Christ is present with us and Christ is guiding us to solve it? Reminding us to love God with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors deeply. I mean, if we did that, if we practice this model, it will work anywhere. Anywhere where we go, anywhere where God's people are assembled, it will work in school, it will work in friendships, it will work at work. It will be successful in the community, in the church, in the city. Why? Because it starts with you and me. Because we want to solve problems, not create them. See, the church can solve all the conflicts of the world because where Christ, where we gather two or three, Christ is there with us, encouraging us, pushing us forward, demanding the best out of us. That's the currency. That's the power of two or three gathered in Christ's name. If we admit at some time in the future, the world will look back on this era and say it was a messy time in our history. But you know, my friends, there have been other messy times as well. I mean, there was the Civil War. There was the Spanish flu pandemic. There was the Great Depression. World War II. The Civil Rights Movement. And sometimes we're tempted to ask and we're tempted to think back and say, how did the world survive that? How did humanity get over those speed bumps, those difficulties, over that messiness? And throughout this whole time, the last six months, I've been asking, how did we survive this? How did our country survive? How did the world survive all these difficulties in the past? And about the time that I think there are no answers. I begin to hear it. It's as if James Earl Jones in his bass profundo voice answered my question. This is what it would say. People gathered. They gathered in twos or three as if dipped in holy water. There has been one constant around for 2,000 years, the church. The world has rolled by like an army of steamrollers. It is erased and rebuilt time and again but the church has marked the time. It reminds us of all that can be good in the world and all that can still be good in the world. People gather two or three in Christ's name. People gathered. And so my brothers and sisters, on this day, 
On the Lord's day, let us remember that where two or three are gathered, Christ is with us always, even when we are not in the same room. That where two or three are gathered and we unite our hearts in prayer, God hears our prayers and God will answer. And that when we value relationships and two or three work towards solutions, peace will reign and the world will be transformed. As the old Sunday school song says, you are the church. I am the church. We are the church together. All of God's children all around the world. Let's be the church together. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you'll consider joining us for worship on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock or Sunday mornings at 8.30, 9, or 11. Have a blessed day.